taught us that this was not a traditional army the way we would think of armies. And, 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 and all the things that happened, of all the things that happened during that seven-year period, it could only really be explained as being from the hand of God. There was nothing that could have been explained or brought up to human ingenuity or human strength or anything of the like. Everything was coming from God Himself. But now, there is a general rest and the people are settling down into their inheritances. And these last three chapters, these last three sermons, as I say, Joshua, coming to the end of his life, is challenging the people. He is challenging their commitment. What actually happens in these chapters is we have Joshua leading the people to self-examination to see the level of their commitment to the Lord their God who had brought them into this land. He is challenging them to wholeheartedly serve the Lord. Remember how chapter 21 ended. The nation of Israel having just settled in the land with, quote, rest on every side just as the Lord had sworn to their fathers and not one of all their enemies had withstood them. Now they're faced, however, with another threat. You'd think they're tired, they're worn out, they're exhausted, and there's still another threat. But this threat was a threat from within. You see, what we're going to see in chapter 22, it's, it's, it's a chapter that is often overlooked in, in the book of Joshua, but it's an important chapter nonetheless. What we're going to see in this chapter is the separation of the children of Israel. It is a geographical separation, which leads to a potential theological separation. A geographical separation, which leads to a potential theological separation. And that is the thing that actually brings the the land of Israel, the children of Israel, to the brink of civil war, if you can imagine it. They had, for the most part, finished the main part of the battle against the inhabitants of Canaan, and now they're going to face off with each other. And that's almost unthinkable, because you'd think they'd just get weary and tired of of war. But it's an account of what really happened. There was this generation who lived during the time of Joshua, who for the most part served the Lord. That means they knew Him. They loved him. They generally obeyed him. And they stand as a testament to those who are to come of all that God had done and of all that he was was worth. They were not in the ultimate rest that God had promised to the forefathers. That rest would come only in Christ. This is a precursor to that rest. But they were in the promised land. They had failed to utterly drive out the Canaanites. But remember, this is just a reminder that they were not in the place of ultimate rest of which God spoke. But they were there nonetheless. They had a general desire to serve Yahweh. So much so, as I say, that it brought them to the brink of civil war. What would do that? What would bring them to the brink of civil war at this time? Well... Let's look together at Joshua chapter 22. And what we're going to do, there's, there's basically uh, uh, one big scene that takes place here that unfolds in three movements. 
there's what we would call the commendation. There's secondly what we would call the confrontation. And then the conciliation. Okay? Let me read, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 22. At that time, Joshua summoned the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh and said to them, You have kept all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you and have obeyed my voice in all that I have commanded you. You have not forsaken your brothers these many days down to this day, but have been careful to keep the charge of the Lord your God. And now the Lord your God has given rest to your brothers as he promised them. Therefore... Turn and go to your tents in the land where your possession lies, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you on the other side of the Jordan. Only be very careful to observe the commandment and the law that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you to love the Lord your God and to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments and to cling to him and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. So Joshua blessed them and sent them away, and they went to their tents. Now to the one half of the tribe of Manasseh, Moses had given a possession in Bashan. But to the other half, Joshua had given possession beside their brothers in the land west of the Jordan. And when Joshua sent them away to their homes and blessed them, he said to them, Go back to your tents with much wealth and with very much livestock, with silver, gold, bronze, iron, with much clothing. Divide the spoil of your enemies with your brothers. So the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh returned home, parting from the people of Israel at Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan, to go to the land of Gilead, their own land of which they had possessed themselves by the commandment of the Lord through Moses. As I said, the scene unfolds to us and we see three movements. The first movement I just read to you there in verses 1 through 9, and that's what I'm labeling the commendation. He, Joshua is commending a por- portion of the people of Israel. Now, we've already pointed out about the rest that the people had had. There's rest from war. There's an overall or general peace. Yes, there were still enemies and they, uh, that were in the land. They were defeated enemies. That's something that makes it difficult to understand why or how the people just failed to do what God had called them to do. But they are in the land nonetheless. They got a lot of things wrong. But they did get some things right. And we see one of those things right here in this commendation. You see, remember Israel existed in 12 tribes. Well, here we have called out here, half-tribe of Manasseh, the Reubenites and the Gadites. The Reuben, the tribe of Reuben. One of the things that we have to remember is what happened back in Numbers chapter 32. So just quickly, turn back there in Numbers chapter 32. We're not going to spend a real long time in this chapter today. I just want to highlight a few things and, and bring it back to you. Numbers 32. So this just gives you a background of what's happening and why, okay? The people of Reuben, this is verse 1 of Numbers 32, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad had a very great number of livestock, and they saw the land of Jazer and the land of Gilead 
And behold, the place was a place for livestock. So the people of Gad and the people of Reuben came and said to Moses and to Eleazar the priest and to the chiefs of the congregation, their names are there in verse 3, the land that the Lord struck down before the congregation of Israel is a land for livestock and your servants have livestock. And they said, if we have found favor in your sight, let this land be given to your servants for possession. Do not take us across the Jordan. But Moses said to the people of Gad and the people of Reuben, Shall your brothers go to war while you sit here? Why will you discourage the heart of the people of Israel from going over into the land that the Lord has given them? Your fathers did this when I sent them from Kadesh Barnea to see the land. For when they went up to the valley of Eschol and saw the land, they discouraged the heart of the people of Israel from going into the land that the Lord had given them. And the Lord's anger was kindled on that day, and he swore, saying, Surely none of the men who came up out of Egypt for twenty years old and upward shall see the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, because they have not wholly followed me. Now, down to um, verse 16. Then they came near to him and said, We will build sheepfolds here for our livestock and cities for our little ones, but we will take up arms ready to go before the people of Israel until we have brought them to their place. Now, just stop right there. The rest of the chapter is... The account of Moses saying, yes, this is a good thing. You can have this possession on the eastern side of the Jordan River. If you send into battle, and at that time it was sending in 40,000 men to join the army. If you send them into battle and stay with them until the rest of the tribes of Israel have fully obtained all that God had given to them. So you got the basic picture. That's the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. Now the land is at rest and Joshua summons these tribes and says, now this is all, please don't mistake this. There are those teachers and Bible scholars who say that this was obviously an error. It was something wrong. I don't think it was. This was according to the command of the Lord through Moses. Joshua brings them and says, the half tribe of Manasseh, the Reubenites, the Gadites, he says, okay, you can go to your land. But he commends them. He commends them. He encourages them. Verses 1 through 3 and verses 6 through 7. For seven long years, these men, they didn't go home on the weekends. For seven long years, they were separated from their wives, from their families, but now the battle is over. The battle is over. The war is over. There's a few skirmishes, but the war is over. And, now it, and the land is divided. And now it's time for them to go back to the land which the Lord their God had given to them through the servant of the Lord, Moses. 40,000 of them had come. They had waged war. They had waged battle with their, their, their brothers. But now the time for them to come, uh, had come for them to go back to the land that God had had promised them. And Joshua just commends them. Day by day, day after day, they had fought side by side with their brothers. They were right there seeing what God had done, witnessing the work of the Lord. And you know how it must just knit their hearts together 
as they were battling, as they were fighting side by side and seeing all that God had done, you can imagine that their hearts were knit together and that they grew in their companionship and, and camaraderie and love one for another these seven years. But now the time has come. Joshua commends them. He encourages them. You see the encouragement there in verses 1 through 3, in verses 6 through 7. And he says, job well done. You can now go back. Go back to your tents. Not only does he encourage them, but then in verses 4 and 5 and also in verse 8, he exhorts them. He exhorts them. Six specific exhortations. What are they? Go to your tents. Observe the commandment to love the Lord your God. Observe the commandment to walk in His ways. To keep His commandments. To cling to Him. Be glued to Him. Be riveted to Him. Don't let yourself be separated from Him. Serve Him with all your heart. This is, these are the, the exhortations that Joshua, aged Joshua, the, the commander that they had followed, I mean, listen, they had followed through the Jordan River to the promised land on the eastern side of the Jordan River. And they had followed through many battles these seven years. And Joshua encourages them and he exhorts them. Why? Well, there are several warnings in these last three chapters. Several warnings in these last three sermons that was perhaps necessitated by the distance that would lie between those, the half-tribe of Manasseh, the Reubenites and the Gadites, who were going back over the Jordan River to the east side of the river. Okay? There was perhaps, Joshua would have noticed, that there was perhaps reason to question whether or not they would be fully committed to the Lord their God. Why? Because what we think about this, oh, it's just a river. It's just a river separating them. It's nothing. I mean, we have a river right here. Well, remember, they didn't have bridges. PennDOT wasn't a thing. And if it was, it would have been bad for them anyway. But if it, the bridges didn't exist. But not, this was not just an ordinary river. The Jordan River is cut, has cut into this area a, a, the Jordan River Valley. Mountains on each side, side rise to upwards of 2,000 feet. There's this great gorge that, that exists from 5 to 13 miles wide. During one part of the year, there's intense heat. During the other part of the year, there's an, amazing, there's an abounding flood. It was not just this easy thing that they could go and come as they pleased. And so Joshua's thinking, you know what? The distance may make it possible for you to forget all that the Lord your God has done. For you to go back to all of your livestock and all of your business, this happens, doesn't it? You get so busy and so caught up with what you're doing that what happens? You forget who? The Lord your God. Has that ever happened to you? You get so busy and so caught up with those things and distance is separating. You say, ah, I can't do it anymore. That's what Joshua is concerned about. After all, out of sight, out of mind. This commendation. This commendation, so, so, so what they do is they obey Joshua. They get up and they go. Same verb, Joshua says go. The exact same verb, they, they went. 
Okay? They, they departed. They returned. That commendation leads to a confrontation. What? Well, let me read here in verse 10. Look at this confrontation. When they, now we're talking about the half-tribe of Manasseh, the Reubenites, the Gadites, and when they came to the region of the Jordan that is still in the land of Canaan, so they came to the region of the Jordan that's still on the, the, the west side, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh built there an altar by the Jordan, an altar of imposing size. Stop right there. So imagine this half-tribe of Manasseh, the Reubenites and the Gadites going down the road. They come to long level. And the river, I mean, it's not a one-for-one equality here because of the, the, the depth and all those kind of things. But just imagine they come to that river and they say, now we're going to go across to the other side, right? So imagine somebody would want to go to the wrong side of the river. I don't know who that would want to be, Braden, but wrong side of the river, right? And what they do is they say, before we get there, before we cross, we're going to build this giant altar. According to verse 20, is it verse 27, 28? Look at verse 28. Behold, the copy of the altar of the Lord, which our fathers made. They were making a copy. It was a replica of the altar of the Lord that was built in Shiloh. That was the place where the sacrifices were to be taken. The writer here doesn't comment on whether or not this is good or bad or indifferent. He just states what happened. But he wants us to know that it was of imposing size. That Hebrew word is a is a really general word. It, it means everything from noble to great to much to, to more. This was a gigantic, imposing structure built of rocks and earth. Okay? So they built that on the eastern side before they crossed over to the Jordan. Now, um, this was their stake in the ground, so to speak. What happens? Well, what happened then is what would happen now. What happens now? News travels. And bad news really travels. News travels and bad news sells. And that's exactly what took place there. Because there were those who were remaining on the western side of the river. They heard about it and their hearts were pricked. Look at verse 11 now. And the people of Israel, people on the west side, heard it. And said, Behold, the people of, the, of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh have built the altar at the frontier of the land of Canaan in the region about the Jordan on the side that belongs to the people of Israel. And when the people of Israel heard it, the whole assembly of the people of Israel gathered at Shiloh to make war. What? Well, keep your finger there and look with me at Deuteronomy chapter 12. Verse 1.
Well, actually, just, just go down to verse uh, 8 for a moment. You shall not do according to all that we are doing here today, everyone doing whatever is right in his own eyes, for you have not as yet come to the rest and to the inheritance that the Lord your God is giving you. But when you go over the Jordan and live in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to inherit, and when he gives you rest from all your enemies around so that you live in safety, then to the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there, there you shall bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes, and the contribution that you present, and all your finest vow offerings that you vow to the Lord. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God and your sons and your daughters, your male servants and your female servants, and the Levite that is within your towns, since he has no portion or inheritance with it. Take care that you do not offer your burnt offerings at any other, at, at any place that you see, but at the place that the Lord will choose in one of your tribes, there you shall offer your burnt offerings, and there you shall do all that I am commanding you to do. Leviticus 17, 8, 9, 8 through 9 says, And if anyone offers a burnt offering on any other place, that person should be cut off from the tribe, from the children of Israel. What we have happening here is an assumption that's made by the Western tribes. They were assuming that this altar that had been built was an act of apostasy. And they knew what that meant. They had very intimate knowledge of what happens when you rebel against the Lord your God. When you rebel against the Lord your God, He is angry. And the Lord would bring His anger against them. They had quite a history with these things and it was so distasteful to them. So distasteful that they would actually mount up arms against those very people who had just labored seven years beside them. They would mount up arms even though they were tired and worn out and weary from the war. They saw what was happening. They assumed they knew exactly what was happening. These people are building an altar to burn uh, sacrifices to the Lord God, and this would be anathema. This should not happen. Now, never mind that it took place on the western side of the river. It didn't com- compute to them, I guess. But what I notice is that the people on the western side didn't just go and wipe out the half-tribe of Manasseh and the Rubites and the Gadites. They actually sent a delegation. Look at verse 13. Then the people of Israel sent to the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh, the land of Gilead, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar the priest. Stop right there. Phinehas. Maybe, maybe just write down in your Bibles, next to the word Phinehas, Numbers 25. Whenever you see Phinehas, I want you to remember that this was a man who had a zeal for the holiness of of God, such that when there was rebellion in Israel, the first to speak up, the first to take action, Numbers 25 is an instance, was Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the priest. In other words, when they send Phinehas, they are sending a man who is jealous for the holiness, the glory of God. He, would, he was not a coward. He was not afraid to call, as we would say, to call a spade a spade. 
He was willing to fully address the situation no matter what. But not just Phineas. They sent with him Phineas, the son of Eleazar, the priest, and, verse 14, with him ten chiefs, one from each of the tribal families of Israel, every one of them the head of the family among the clans of Israel. And they came to the people of Reuben, the people of Gad, the half-tribe of Manasseh, in the land of Gilead, and they said to them, look at, look, look at this boldness, it seems very wise here, they're, 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 they're very forthright, they clearly identify the issue. What is the issue? Thus, verse 16 says, the whole congregation of the Lord. What is this breach of faith that you have committed against the God of Israel and turning away this day from following the Lord by building yourselves an altar this day in rebellion against the Lord? Do you notice any beating around the bush? <laughs> Have we not, verse 17, had enough of the sin at Peor from which even yet we have not cleansed ourselves? And from, for which there came a plague upon the congregation of the Lord, no beating around the bush, right between the eyes with truth, right? That you too must turn away this day from following the Lord. And if you rebel, if you too rebel against the Lord today, then tomorrow he will be angry, not just with you, but with all of us. See, they, they go and they deal with forthright clarity and bold courage just, just right between the eyes with the truth. They remember what happened and they had no desire for that whatsoever. They bring this confrontation to the point that they say in verse eight, uh, 19, if the land of your possession is unclean, pass over into the Lord's land where the Lord's tabernacle stands and take for yourselves a possession among us. They're willing to give up their own possession. Just come with us. Don't go this way. You you can have the sense that they're begging. Don't rebel. Don't rebel. Don't go against the Lord your God. And there's such passion and and courage as they deal boldly with these, these people. Well, People of Reuben, verse 21. The people of Reuben, the people of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh said in answer to the heads of the families of Israel, El Elohim Yahweh, the Mighty One, God the Lord. The Mighty One, God the Lord. They're identifying Him specifically. That this... This is not their, they're not giving their reason. They're not giving their excuse. They begin here with God. He knows and let all Israel itself know. If it was in rebellion or in breach of faith against the Lord, do not spare us today for building an altar to turn away from following the Lord. They're agreeing. That's right. This would be, a, this would be the greatest sin possible. Don't spare us. Take us out. If we did so to offer burnt offerings or grain offerings or peace offerings on it, may the Lord Himself take vengeance. You see what they're saying? They're, they're agreeing. They're, they're, not, they're not offended in the sense that they're like, how dare you call into question our commitment? How dare you? No, there's this, this almost gentle answer that the book of Proverbs tells us in, in Proverbs 15.1 that turns away wrath. No, they said. No. Verse 24. We didn't do this to offer burnt offerings. We, 
We did it from fear that in time to come, your children might say to our children, what have we to do with the Lord, the God of Israel? For the Lord has made the Jordan a boundary between us and you and you people of Reuben and people of Gad. You have no portion in the Lord. So your children might make our children cease to worship the Lord our God. That's why we said, verse 26, let us now build an altar, not for burnt offering or for sacrifice, but to be a witness between us and you and between our generations after us that we do perform the service of the Lord in, the presence with, in His presence with our burnt offerings and sacrifices and peace offerings. So your children will not say to our children in time to come, you have no portion in the Lord. And we thought if this should be said to us in To our descendants in the time to come, we should say, Behold, look, over there across the river, the copy of the altar of the Lord, which our fathers made, not for burnt offerings or for sacrifice, but to be a witness between us and you. Far be it from us that we should rebel against the Lord and turn away this day from following the Lord by building an altar for burnt offering, grain offering, or sacrifice other than the altar of the Lord our God that stands before His tabernacle. He says, these people had still had Joshua's commands fresh in their minds. And it was a way, their way. Again, the writer doesn't give us positive or negative. It just, this is their way of remembering the Lord, their God. Not for sacrifice, but it was built as a marker. A marker for the future. To remind everyone that they, though parted by the river valley, were part of Israel. They were called to worship the one true God, to be a witness. It's emphasized 27, 28, and 34. This was to be a witness. It was to be a, a testimony bearer. In other words, when anybody, whenever anyone would see this altar, they would, were to know what it meant. That is what? That the place for worship was very specific. It was there in Shiloh where God had appointed sacrifice to be made, where God and man could meet together and no other place and they were recording this the 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 very recording of this the very writing down of this would be a marker to all the people for a long time to come it was they said no 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 this was not to be a substitute it was to be a reminder that's we were we had this in our mind we had this in our mind it was a reminder of who god really is and who they really belong to and many of us have something like this today You think back to a time, maybe there's a place where you go to, there's just that place where you remember, for me, it's always that ping pong table there at the camp, that Christian camp that I was, Rhodes Grove, that I was part of, on the day when the Lord Jesus Christ called to me and I understood the gospel and believed it and confessed my sin. Every time today, I see a ping pong table and that reminds me immediately of that day when I was 18 years old, I sat there and committed my heart and life to the Lord Jesus Christ. And many of us have that same kind of thing. There's a place. There's something that jars that memory. And you remember back when you committed yourself wholeheartedly to the Lord, and that's what this was supposed to be. And I found myself thinking, because it's, it's about a generation that goes by. In the book of Judges, we get to the generation when Joshua and those who were with him died, that the people of Israel did what was right in the, size, in the sight of their own eyes. And I wonder how many times, how many people on either side of the Jordan looked on that altar and how they rejected and ignored 
the fact that the Lord God was deserving of their worship and praise. And how many times that happens in our lives? How many times it happens in our lives where we say, you know what? I see that altar there, figuratively speaking. I know the commitment I made. But you know what? And then excuse or ignorance or whatever might take place and you just get further and further away from the truth. Further and further for us away from the cross of Christ which is the only place where God and man can meet. You see, this confrontation the, I said, people of Israel got a lot wrong, but they got something right. Here, here you got the, 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 the Western tribes burning with a diligence, a, 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 a vigilance for the holiness of God, knowing that His anger would be, would, be, would be brought against them as well. And so they go and they address them boldly, courageously, right between the eyes with truth. And Manasseh and Reubenites and the Gadites, they don't respond with some sort of how dare you. They say, no, 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 that wasn't our point at all. Joshua's words were fresh in our mind and we wanted to have this memorial between us and you, this witness between us and you, that we serve the Lord our God. There's a lot they had gotten wrong. But this they had gotten right. That commendation which led to a confrontation, led to a conciliation. War was averted, praise the Lord. There was reconciliation, praise the Lord. Verse 30, when Phinehas, the priests and the chiefs of the congregation, the heads of the families of Israel who were with him, heard the words that the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the people of Manasseh spoke, it was good in their eyes. You bet it was good. And Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the priest said to the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the people of Manasseh, today we know that the Lord is in our midst because you have not committed this breach of faith against the Lord. Now you've delivered the people of Israel from the hand of the Lord. And Phinehas and the son, of, the son of Eleazar, the priests and the chiefs, returned from the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the land, in the land of Gilead to the land of Canaan, to the people of Israel, and brought back word to them. And the report was good in the eyes of the people of the Lord. And the people of Israel blessed God and spoke no more of making war against them to destroy the land where the people of Reuben and the people of Gad were settled. The people of Reuben and the people of Gad called the altar witness, for they said, it is a witness between us that the Lord Yahweh is God, that He is the strong, strong one. This, this conciliation, this peacemaking between them is an evidence, they say, of the presence of God in their midst. The fact that there was a fix to this issue was a demonstration of the presence of God in their midst. And they were blessing the Lord. They were giving thanks to God. This which could have gone so badly. I mean, imagine how the the enemies of Israel would have rejoiced to see now Israel in a civil war beating and bloodying each other. Could have gone so badly, but it ended up being to the praise of the Lord God. And I believe, at least for a time, because the next chapter opens, and for a long time, I believe for a long time, 
This became a motivation toward godly living in the midst of the land. The commendation, the confrontation, and the conciliation. Well, what, what can we learn from this incident? Because the Bible does say that those things that happened before were written for our learning. What kind of lessons might we gain? I suppose there are many. I can see the lesson about the danger of compromise, first of all. You see how they, they, they intuitively knew that one person's compromise sort of led, would, would just lead to everyone else's, the danger of compromise. People clearly viewed this as, a very, as very real and a very present danger. The spiritual digression of one tribe would potentially affect many, many others. It's a danger of compromise. And, and together with that, I see this, this in this danger of compromise, I see this lesson about how to long, yearn for and long for the, the glory of God. And, and you've got two different sides here, going at it in two different ways, but, but they come together here in the middle and they understand what, you know, instead of making assumptions, what they were both about. The danger of compromise. But you also see a... Well, it makes me think this, that I, I talked about earlier having those things in our life that sort of mark out, that remind us, that point to our commitment. And if I can just talk plainly, our commitment to Christ, our commitment to follow Him. There are those things, maybe, maybe a place, maybe a song, maybe a person. Maybe you open that place in your Bible and you see that, that verse that you have underlined and you have written down and you say, that's right, that's, that's the verse that brought me to Christ. And it's sort of... I don't know, elicits those, those, those affections, strengthens your affections for Christ. You say, that's right, I'm a follower of Christ. And it's just a reminder to us about the danger of compromise. Would you say today that there's a point in your life where you're not as fervent for the glory of God as you once were? Would you say that? You're not as fervent for the glory of God as you once were. And, and maybe even to the degree when you walk past that reminder or that you, you see that verse or maybe you walk past that dust-riddled Bible that's laying on the, you know, the coffee table. To the, it, it no longer affects you. Where, where are you in your commitment to Christ? Not only does it remind us of the danger of compromise, it, it reminds us of the call to courage. I just see these people. A lot of folks take this text and go, oh, wow, the people on the west side, they jumped to conclusions and, and, and it was all because of... I don't think that's the point of the text. I have a hard time drawing that out of this text just because of what the Scripture doesn't say. I think it's an, an, an argument from silence. What I see is, is some courageous people who, though they're tired and though they're worn out and though they're weary, say, you know what? Well, we've got to stand up for the Lord our God. And, there, and the, the equal courage of the, the, the half-tribe of Manasseh and the Reubenites and the Gadites to be able to say, no, no, no. Let, they, they, we, the, we agree with that. that. That's a doctrinal truth. We agree. Let it be. Cut us off if we're going to do something against the Lord. But that was not our purpose at all. There's a certain call to courage here for us in this day and age to stand up and say, you know what? Thus says the Lord. There's a danger of compromise, a call to courage, an example of confrontation. 
at very least an example of confrontation. Nine ways. I mean, as we already said, that squarely addressed themselves. They, they brought the problem. They didn't sweep it under the rug whatsoever. They, they took apostasy so seriously, put purity above their own lives. They sent the best leaders, the priests Phineas and those heads of, of, of the tribes. They addressed the, the offense objectively as a breach of faith. It was, they didn't beat around the bush. Here's the issue. Argued their case on the conviction. Willing to sacrifice some of their own land. I mean, that's amazing to me. Come over here. If, just don't go that way. There's, there's a good way, good examples for us when we confront. And you see that, that boldness. And yet that humble compassion to be able to address someone. You see that, that example? And, and then having, uh, for the Western side, they were corrected. The perceived offenders, they understood what was going on and they didn't, they didn't keep pushing their case. They backed away. They were like, okay, they were, they were satisfied. They didn't, they didn't try to save face and neither did the, the folks on the East side. They were, again, I said, a, a gentle answer turns away wrath. They were just rejoicing, understanding that God is at work here. It's, 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 there's a danger of compromise. There's a call to courage. And there are examples for confrontation when we have to confront someone or be confronted. But what it comes down to, if I can just close this way, it's a pointer. It's a pointer to the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. It, it directs our attention to the place where God and man meet. Where God's holiness and God's grace are brought together. It's the, it directs us to the place on which the Lord Jesus Christ gave up His life to reconcile erring, sinful men and women with His, with his Father. The Lord Jesus Christ did that work. It's the only place where sacrifice can be made. And in, 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 a may, in a very real way, it's pointing us to that. I mean, that, that altar that they had constructed pointed back to Shiloh, which was a reminder that they could only do sacrifice where God had pointed them. And it's a reminder to us, you know what? That that altar was not the fulfillment of God's ultimate plan. The cross of Christ is. And if you're here today, having never come to the cross where the Lord Jesus Christ suffered and bled and died and gave up His life. Because the Bible says he was, that God had laid on Him the sin of us all. And he suffered and bled and died and was put into a tomb. And three days later, He bodily, physically rose again, just like the Scripture says. If you've never come to that and you say, you know what, that's the payment for my sin. He's the one I'm trusting. He's the one I'm resting. If you've never come to that point, you're here today without the forgiveness of sin. And if you were to die today, you would go to hell. And see, I just want to boldly confront that today. I want to I hit this straight as I can. Would you go to hell today? Is that what you choose? When you know that a sacrifice has been made, when you know that the price has been paid, would you still go to hell? I hope you can say in your heart, no. I hope some of you can say, I won't. 
because I'm trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ and He is my righteousness and my hope and my trust. And I hope that some of the others would say, you know what, today I've never known the Lord Jesus Christ. I've never repented of my sin and believed on the Lord, but today is the day that I'll do that. Don't go to hell. Let's pray.